Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Joanne Lublin is the author of Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. She is the former management news editor of the Wall Street Journal and created its first career advice column, which she wrote until May of 2020. Joanne shared the journal's 2003 Pulitzer Prize for stories about corporate scandals. In 2018, she won the Gerald Loeb Lifetime Achievement Award, the highest accolade in business journalism. Joanne is the author of two books about female business leaders. Her first popular leadership book, Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World, offers insights from 52 high-level executive women about obstacles they overcame. And her latest, of course, is Power Moms. Welcome, Joanne. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And your book was fantastic. Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. This was awesome. And by the way, the subtitle does not reflect that it's not only moms of one generation, but also their adult, the adult children of the next generation, which is so genius to contrast and compare. So I loved that. In fact, the book is about three different generations, if you think about it. Because I interviewed 111 women altogether, of whom 86 were women who had children and became executives from two generations, my generation, the boomers, and the generation of millennials and Gen Xers, women in their 30s and early 40s. Separate from that, I interviewed roughly two dozen adult daughters of the boomers, who for the most part were women in their 20s to ask them, what was it like growing up with fill in the blank? Somebody say like Mindy Grossman of WW, Weight Watchers International, having her as your mom, what what was that like? And of course, there's also a very personal side to this book because my publisher insisted that every chapter start with a personal anecdote. So my husband's in here, my adult daughter's in here, my adult son, and it became kind of a family affair, so to speak. Well, honestly, those were my favorite parts. I mean, I appreciated all the advice and I need that and it was great and helpful and interesting. You have four kids, right? I have four kids. I feel like not so power mom today, but I feel like, but everything being up in the air on your cover, that, that is an accurate reflection of, of the state of my life. How old are your children? I have 13 year old twins, boy, girl, and then a seven year old girl and a six year old boy. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> so it's busy, but it's great. But, you know, I loved, first of all, how you threw away the concept of work-life balance and called it work-life sway. Tell me more about that because that was, I'm like, finally, I don't have to try to achieve balance. (laughs) Well, frankly, this notion that work-life balance is an impossible ideal is something I addressed in one chapter of my first book, which was called Earning It. And that was a chapter whose title was Manager Moms Are Not Acrobats. Duh. And when I started reporting this book and reaching out to these younger executive moms, these women in their 30s and early 40s, The first one I actually met said, you know, have you heard of work-life sway? I was like, what? What's that? (laughs) 
You know, and she said, it's the idea that we have to accept that work-life balance is a myth. It's an ideal. It's never can be achieved. And we have to acknowledge the fact that we have two different parts to our lives. And we're going to sway back and forth as needed and have one part of our life intrude in the other when it's important and not get all bent out of shape about that. And I was like, okay, you know, tell me here what you're talking about. And so this woman is an executive for a very important global auction house. She runs their photography business worldwide. But, you know, when her one of her two sons took a step for the first time, her nanny texted her a video. And so she was, you know, it was sort of, I guess it was live is what it was. She was watching her toddler take his first step and she was at the office. And, you know, those in my generation, if God forbid our child did take the first step while they were being cared for by the caregiver, the caregivers knew not to tell you (laughs) so that you could see it happen. And frankly, I have no idea if either one of my children started walking for the first time when they were in the care of a a child caregiver. I doubt it with my son. He walked when he was nine months old, which was a little young. That's early. Yeah. Right. So the good news was he walked when he was nine months old. The bad news was our childcare provider had cared for him in her house and said, I will take care of your newborn until he starts to walk. And then you got to find somebody else. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I got to go find another caregiver. <laughs> well, the sway that the, uh, particularly the younger moms talked about is how they basically bring, sometimes quite literally bringing their children into work. Right. The girl, the daughter at the board, the law, legal office board meetings and the baby conference calls with babies. I mean, that is just the way it is, especially now with COVID, with everybody at home. Now with COVID, we're bringing our children to work 24-7. And and I think, frankly, it's even more important with COVID-19 to try and forget about work-life balance and to accept not only that we are imperfect, but that work is going to intrude on home life and home life is going to intrude on work life. And you kind of go with the flow. That's kind of the principle behind work life's way. You know, it all gets taken care of in the end. And frankly, the children all grown up, grow up to be perfectly capable adults. And if we have been good parents, we've raised them right. And even if we haven't been good parents, they often turn out okay. So, you know, you got to take the longer view, I think. I think you're absolutely right. And your book also, it's not even just about the demands of kids at home. It's like all these other things that impinge on your work life. Because when work becomes such a central part to who you are as a person, when you lose a parent, when you have a child who's ill, when you have really anything going on, it affects work. So it's almost like the book is more a guidebook to how to be a working person at all in the world. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like how to balance a giant career and anything because life happens. That's right. It does. And there's a very, very important chapter called Power Over Pain that relates to just the the issue you're talking about. You know, what happens when you yourself develop a life-threatening illness or a, a loved one, whether it's a baby or a grown child or a spouse or a parent, and God forbid one of those treasured family members dies. How does that affect your view of yourself? How does that affect your view of the world? And frankly, the idea for that chapter came from my daughter, Abra, who in around age 29 was diagnosed with a genetic condition 
that she inherited from me and from my mother's side of the family. It is a joint condition in which you never know when your joints are to go out of alignment. She described it to me recently very well, I thought. She said, Mom, having this EDS is like having the radio on at all times in the background, and you never know when it's suddenly going to become loud and debilitate you. And so that's the other horrible thing about a chronic illness is you don't have any way to control it. And in fact, she was joking with me the other day. She says, I can give lots of advice to people about the, how to quarantine and how to isolate yourself because, you know, often I can't function and have had to do that pre-COVID-19. I'm actually going to interview soon another author who has a whole book on her experience with chronic illness. I should just send you the link to whatever the book is. Of course, now I'm blanking on the title, but it's about her okay. her experience with chronic illness and how it affects so many people in the United States. And it made me think of your daughter. And that chapter was so poignant, especially when you describe yourself crying as she's crying. And oh, it was just, because what can you do? You were like, what can I do aside from cry? It was so sad. And yet your daughter is the one who was like, I have to choose life because what choice do I have? That's the only way to go. And like she in the book seems to be inspiring you. It was, and then of course, all of us reading it. She has, she has been so inspiring to me. And yet, you know, on a day-to-day basis, she has no control over her life. She has to essentially live in the moment. And frankly, that is good philosophy for all of us. We have to live for today because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And so that's part of my own philosophy of life which is tell the people you love that you love them today. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And also view the world as the glass half full. It's true. Those are good philosophies. And you have been through like so much, even professionally yourself, having been such a head honcho at the Wall Street Journal and career columnist. And you've seen so much and you've grown up in such a time where all these things have been thrown at you in in all the ways that you talk about. I mean, you're like... You're still standing. You're like the, I feel like you're like in a carousel where all the like horses are going up and down and you're in the middle and like every course is like a different thing. Is th- Like you've been through so much and yet you've come out on top and now you're sharing all of your secrets with us. So when you look back on your, on your career as a journalist and a manager and a mother and like all the things you've accomplished of all the challenges, what was like the biggest one and how did you get through that? I think the biggest one was coming back to work after my first maternity leave. So the year is 1979, it's when my son was born. And what happened was a half a dozen journalists at the Wall Street Journal all declared their pregnancies within the same two week period earlier that year. The managing editor threw up his hands in disgust. He's like, this is not in my you know, job description. What am I supposed to do? And only two of us came back to work after maternity leave. And the other one, who was a reporter in New York, lasted, I don't know, a month or two, and she quit. So, you know, it's just me. There's no role models. There are no books. There's no internet. There's nobody to talk to about this. And and my first day back at work was just horrible, horrible. And I remember waiting for the bus with one of the journal colleagues, a guy, of course, and he said, so where do you park your baby all day? (laughs) And it just really, really hurt. But frankly, it was even worse seven months later because a colleague of mine in the Washington Bureau who had decided not to come back after her baby was born, and he, he was born very soon after Dan, 
we were asked by the editorial page editors to write opposing op-ed essays on why, in her case, she chose to stay home and why, in my case, I chose to come back to work. And again, this is before you're working on a computer, you're still typing stories because it's 1980, all right? And the articles run back to back with a drawing of a scowling infant looking at this typewriter, right? And what happened was the story appears and then a week or so later, my husband and I went away for a long weekend, first time since the baby was born, left him with my parents. We, I come back to work, you know, after this long weekend, of course, I miss my baby terribly, come back to work on Monday and I find there's an entire page of letters to the editor attacking me personally. And on my desk is another 30 letters that were too basically libelous to publish. They were mostly from women who chose to stay home and be a stay-at-home mom, who were accusing me of an unfit mother. One of them said, it's a good thing that Daniel is uh, not, you're not with Daniel all day because obviously you're not fit to, to be his mother. And I got, as you can imagine, a blinding headache and I, I, I left work you know, at lunchtime, went home and I was walking home from the, the bus stop. It was too early to pick him up at childcare. Plus, you know, I really needed some time to myself. Stopped off at a friend's house who was a school teacher. She was already home from work and I just lost it. I was like, yeah, I can't do this. The whole world is against me. Ugh. So how did you regroup? Like, what did you have to say to yourself? Well, she asked me whether, you know, I really liked being a journalist and liked having a career. And I said, yeah, I love it. It's what I've always wanted to do my entire life. And I'm having a ball, you know. And she said, would you be happier at home with Dan? And I said, no, I, I think I would be miserable and I think it would affect him. And so she said, F him. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's just the, that's the perfect piece of advice for the whole thing, right? <laughs> I mean, everybody has their own way of having to sort of navigate this whole thing of work and life. And I mean, I think back to the challenges not so long ago in your generation compared to how easy it is relative for people like me who like, you know, I can be on my phone writing something like in front of my, they don't even know what I'm doing. I could be like texting my best friend or I could be, you know, writing for a newspaper. It doesn't matter. They don't care. Right. But you're there in person. So I don't know. It's just things, things change so quickly. And then I have to wonder in another, you know, 30, 40 years, the women working then, like, what's that going to look like when like my kids are working? Who knows? Right. Maybe it's all, I mean, I don't know. You want to hear my forecast? I would love that. Well, it's going to be better because you know what? Both my generation and your generation know the importance of raising feminist children. We have to raise feminist sons as well as feminist daughters. And that's what I did with my son and, and my daughter. I think it was harder with my son, frankly, but I, I like the result. And at one point then, you know, not that long ago, he ends up becoming a boss and the people in his office split down the middle. The people who have older kids are opposed, and the people who have younger children or have just had children first time want to bring the babies to the office, to the point you made. And so he reached out to me and said, Mom, what do I do? I have essentially an insurrection in my ranks here. You know, half the people want to bring their kids to, to work up until age one and let them crawl around and do whatever. And I don't think very many people there, it's a government agency, have private offices, so it's not like you could close them off. And the people whose kids are school age or older, like, or have not had children, said, no way. 
but he was thoughtful about it, okay? And, and he looked at both sides and he could speak from his own position because he has three kids under nine years old, you know? I mean, I think if I were to add my own prediction into the hat of, you know, life in 40 years, I mean, I wonder if there will even be offices. I mean, it seems like there's almost no reason to even have an office. Like I'm thinking of your son now that everybody's working from home and nothing bad is, I mean, not nothing bad. It's horrific time. I just mean a lot of businesses can still function in this new format. So all the time spent on commuting, is that worth it versus how much you could get done in those 30 an hour you commuted for a long time. I mean, it's when you were in DC or something, or I don't know. I feel like the commute was really the hardest when I was working in the Manhattan office, Manhattan office. Yeah. I mean, all that wasted time. Well, it was wasted and not wasted. I had a colleague who wrote three novels on that same commute that I was on when I was, you know, blissfully (laughs) continuing to write my stories or reach out to sources or reach out to the kids and let them know that I was on the way. So, you know, there is something to be said for decompression depression time. But on the other hand, there's a recent survey that came out that showed about 47% of employers are willing to let people continue to work from home full time, even after they've, you know, mostly let people come back to the office. So I think that's one of the very profound changes that has come about from coronavirus and COVID-19, which is, guess what? You can work from home and be successful in your career. You know, you may go a little nuts in the process, (laughs) but productivity doesn't have to suffer. Yes. And and I think that's been a major, major breakthrough from this whole horrific experience. Well, I think before people thought that working from home meant you weren't actually working. Right now, everybody knows that like, yes, you're working and you're dealing with 8,000 other things. So actually it's even more impressive, right? (laughs) In my case, I asked for a reduced schedule after I went back to work after Ava was born, it was turned down. And a year later, I then got it and I worked a a four day week for several years. And then when I went into management, I went back to working five days a week. But when we moved back to New York, to the US from London, I was offered a chance to work from home on Fridays by the then managing editor. And initially I was like, oh, I don't need this, right? Kids are school age. And then I thought, you idiot, we'll have this hour, hour and a half commute each way. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. And I did. I did for over 20 years. Wow. So at this point, you have a new book coming out. You clearly have not slowed down at all. What's coming after this? Like, where do you see the rest of your career? Do you want to do another book? Like, what gets you up in the morning? Well, after I wrote my first book, Earning It, Hard Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World, I said, okay, <clears throat> can you check that box? I don't have to write any more books. <laughs> so I never thought I was going to write one book, much less two. I didn't think I had it in me to do any books because I was a journalist. At this point, I don't have any plans for a third book, but who knows? At the same time, the journal ended my career column after 27 years in May. And so I pivoted to work for another section of the paper as a contributor. And it's called Personal Board of Directors. And it's a feature that looks at fast, you know, high potential, high achieving executives who have advisors that have helped them figure out their philosophy of life, of work, and have also helped them advance their careers. And at the point when I started writing for that section this spring, they realized even though this little feature had been around for two years, they had done very few profiles of women 
and very few profiles of people of color of either gender. So that's my focus, is doing personal board of directors profiles, both of women and women of color and, and men of color. And, you know, funny thing about that, I happen to know a fair number of executive women. I can tell, you know, a lot of executive, yeah. yeah. So, you know, one of my first personal board of directors features was about Stephanie Strack, who's one of the younger power moms. And, you know, it was great because it, it ran just before she launched her startup. Startup, of course, turned out to take longer to get off the ground because of COVID. She was hoping it would launch in June. It launched in, in August. In fact, I just heard from her overnight. She's doing okay. <laughs> so what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Or I, or, you know, let me throw journalists in there because you're such a, you know, renowned journalist. So well, I, I would have different advice for aspiring journalists than I would for aspiring book authors. I think for aspiring book authors, it's a Especially important, as Virginia Woolf once said, to have a room of your own. You have to have space where you can think. You have to have space where you can have quiet. And you have to have space where you can work. And, you know, for some people, it's the closet. You know, you just throw out all your clothes and, and you know, put your little desk in there. It, it can be the laundry room. I've, I've done Zooms with, with people having their laptops on top of the dryer. But if there's a door, more power to you. But you really have to be able to think big and think hard and think differently, especially if you've spent your entire career as a journalist. That, frankly, was the hardest transition, was to put it as my first book's editor put it. You have to think writerly and write writerly, which means you have to have longer than one sentence paragraph. (laughs) In terms of advice to somebody who wants to be a journalist, I think you ought to be looking at some of these nonprofit social media outlets that are like Publica that are really kind of doing really great social good as well as, you know, achieving some great journalistic breakthroughs. I've been predicting 30 years that print journalism is the dodo. So far, I've been proven wrong, but I think it's a matter of when, not if, but you know, the Wall Street Journal is a great example of this. There are many, many more subscribers now to the online journal than the print journal, but they can't hold up the print journal tent because there's still a very large core of loyal readers who only read the print journal. I only read the print journal, I have to say. I oh, love print. It's a very big piece of journalism. Really? I mean, the Purple Board of Directors features is a great example. My pieces there run about 11, 1,200 words online, and in print, it's 500 words. It's it's like the, the, the frosting without the cake. Oh, I just, well, I don't know. I try to read three <laughs> newspapers a day, and I don't know. I feel like I can do it a lot faster when I flip. Yeah, it is. It is fast. But now I feel guilty. So from now on, I'll try to skim both. I don't know. There's no, only... My byline on a personal board of directors, you know, <laughs> you can yes, find it. I'm going to set a Google alert now for you. So now I can follow all your stories. How about that? <laughs> awesome. That is awesome. All right. But I really hope, you know, my new book will be of, of help to women, not just ones who already have kids, but women who are thinking, you know, further down the line, I want to at some point get romantically involved with a life partner or a spouse. And I want to have kids and I want to have a successful career. You know, how do I make that work? And that's really the the goal of the book. Well, 
you communicated that and there was fantastic advice and inspiration and it was really great. It's super helpful and came at least for me at like a perfect time. So this was great. So thank you so much. And it was so nice to get to chat with you today. You're welcome. All right. I'll be reading your essays now, (laughs) whenever they come out, all your pieces. All right. Well, thanks, Joanne. And have a great day. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 